0: Next week we start a new series in the book of 1st and 2nd Peter. And so I invite you over this next week to begin to read if you haven't already the book of 1st Peter and 2nd Peter. It's 8 chapters, you could read that uh, several times this week over and over again uh, and be familiar with the ideas that we're going to be studying for the next uh, 10 to 15 weeks somewhere in there. Uh, But today we're wrapping up our series on what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be distinct? What does it mean to be called out from the culture? How are we supposed to behave? How are we supposed to act? What makes us different than the world? And so we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3 this morning. I've had a hard time figuring out how to end this series. you know, Every week we've looked at a different attribute of what makes us Christ followers, what makes us unique, what makes us different, what makes us distinct from the world. And so it's been a difficult series to wrap up. We could go on and on and on. But we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 12 down to 21. Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 says this, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained. Verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom... to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we pass along the word that we received. We thank you that this passage, indeed, all of your words, all of your scripture, has been faithfully preserved and passed on from one generation of believers to the next. There's no doubt in my mind that 200 years from now, somebody will stand up and read this passage in a different context to a different people, in a different culture, maybe even in a different language. But your Holy Spirit will preserve and apply the message of this passage And your word to all things. We know that the word of God endures forever. We thank you that it did not originate in our time. And it does not need my clever analysis or presentation to give it power. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is the one that applies your word, that teaches your word, that draws us into all truth, that reminds us of all truth. And we thank you that we are just a piece of the body of Christ that we are a portion of the bride of Christ. And that here in our local context and with our culture and with our people and with our language, that your word has a specific purpose and an application here to us today. And so we thank you for how it all fits together perfectly in the kingdom. Let us take and receive and hear and apply the word that you speak to us today, that it may strengthen us and make us more like Jesus Christ, as we are transformed into His image. Would you use this time for your glory in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, we started this series with the idea, this topical series, eight weeks. We started this series with the idea that that the church we're in, the culture we're in, uh, the church is experiencing a sifting, uh, that for the last 15 or 20 years there has been Uh, There has never been an easier time for you as believers and for churches and for denominations to compromise doctrine, to acquiesce to a dark culture, to um, let go of long-held convictions, to water down and to soften the truth, and there's never been an easier time for that than there is now. Uh, We've experienced that over the last 15 or 20 years, that the cultural winds, which used to sort of be at our back... Uh, are now more in our face, and that it's easier than ever to compromise your faith. We see it all the time. Matter of fact, the pace is almost weekly, that you can point to people who used to walk with the Lord, who used to be in our fellowship, who used to stand up for truth, who used to stand up for Jesus, who used to believe in the Bible, who used to do all those things that have now gone out from among us that are no longer walking with the Lord. They no longer believe the things that, uh, that the Bible teaches. They now have a different faith altogether, and it's not the same faith that was handed down to us. This is not surprising. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 says, in the later days, the Spirit expressly says that some will depart from the faith. They were with us. Now they're not among us anymore. And as the cultural uh, winds continue to pick up speed you can expect that people in this room will no longer be in this room years from now. And I don't mean that in the sense that this local body of believers, I mean that in the big church, the big C sort of way, that that in the big church, we will not see people walking with Jesus, that we will not see the faith, uh, people continuing and remaining in the faith like we had before. It is more easy now to compromise truth and doctrine and faith in Jesus. And so we took this eight-week topical series to understand what it is that makes us unique as Christ followers. What is it that makes us unique? We we started with Malachi 3, where, where there's a remnant of people who are within the nation Israel who at the serious rebuke of the prophet Malachi Gather together in a small group and say, The word has cut us to the core. What he has prophesied and preached to us, we receive with brokenness and repentance. And it says that group got together in in solemnity and they fortified themselves and feared God and repented of their sins. And they said, we will do all that the prophet says. And God looked down on that group through the prophet Malachi and He said, those are My people. In the day that I make up my treasured possession, Malachi said in chapter 3, He said, quote, in the day that I make up my treasured possession, when the day I look up my people, they shall be mine. That group, that small group. And so we said, what is it about that group? What is it about that group of people, that remnant that God so honored and cherished that he would say, those are my people? And that's what we've been exploring for eight weeks. What is it that makes us his people? His people. We also looked at Hosea, and Hosea was told to take a wife, and he was told to name one of his kids Lo-Ami, right? And kids, what does Lo-Ami mean? Not my people. people. They were saying that they were God's people, but in every way they were living in disobedience and their hearts were far from Him. and he said... They say they're my people, but these are low on me. These are not my people. So how do we get in this group and not in this group? That's what this series has has looked at. How do we sum up this series? We took the first week in Genesis 4-6, through and we traced nine generations of Seth. What was different about God's people through the line of Seth? And what was different about God's people, God's uh, 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 worldly people through the line of Cain? And as we saw those, we saw two lines of people branching off with distinctives about each one. The first group reverenced God and they had a fear of God. Abel worshipped and brought a costly sacrifice by faith. There was a hope in God. They looked to him for direction. They weren't just living on their own with their own ideas and their own sort of direction. They were pausing and asking God and taking their cues from Him as to how they should operate and live and walk. They trusted in God. Uh, we saw how they walked by faith. Abraham um, lived by faith. He believed God, and, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So there was an aspect of faith in their life. They were prayerful people. They were seeking God. They were blessed by God. God preserved them. They feared God by keeping His Word and being obedient to him. They were pleasing to God, walking with him in worship and in intimacy. They were disciplined by God. They were uh, rebuked by him. And as they were, they responded in childlike faith that said, You're right. And they, they changed their ways in repentance. And God did something special for them, for those who were part of his family. He provided for them, He personally interacted with them. A wonderful study, if you ever have time, is to go through all the Christophanies, the pre-incarnate Christ, where the angel of the Lord, capital A, capital L, comes down and dwells with and interacts with his people. God made his presence among them. They were his people. He protected them. He loved them. He blessed them. He, He was pleased with them, and he revealed himself to them. The second week, we talked about how God's people have a purpose and a mission We're not just living purposeless lives. He gave us a task. He gave us the tools. He gave us a mission. He gave us everything that we would need to accomplish His purpose in our context. The third week we talked about how God's people are marked by holiness. You are holy. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a holy people. Be holy because He is holy, 1 Peter 1 says. There is an aspect where your neighbors should look at your life and say, there's something holy about the way you live. Raise your hand if you would consider yourself holy, if your neighbors would consider you holy. All right, not many of us could do that. It's a, it's a difficult thing for the Lord to live through us. But He declares you holy, sanctified and righteous under the umbrella of Christ. And that marks you as different from the world, that you are holy. The fourth week we looked at how God's people are redeemed and purchased by Christ Himself. That He purchased us. Your life is not your own, 2 Corinthians 5 says. That you were bought with a price. That Jesus purchased you so that you should no longer live for yourselves, but for the one who bought you. So you are owned by someone else. Your identity in Christ is that of a doulos, a bondservant, a slave, purchased that you may live for the one who bought you. God's people are persecuted, we talked about in week 5. In week 6 and 7, we talked about how God's people persevere. They endure. They are eternally secure in Christ as they remain in Christ. So how do you end a series like this? There are dozens more attributes that we could look at. We are supposed to be watchers, waiting for the redemption of Christ. We are supposed to be watchful, waiting for Christ to come on the clouds. And that whole aspect is weeks' worth of sermons on how to wait and watch well. There are whole aspects of your uh, life with Christ that you're to be loving, that you're to be salt, that you're to be light, that you're to be gospel proclaimers. There is a lot more that we could say, but we have to end this series somehow. (laughs) And the pervasive question that has been on my mind and on my heart for the last... Six months or more? As I've prayed for Ridgeline, as I've prayed for our church, the question that has burned in my mind and that I've often sought the Lord about is what's the church going to look like tomorrow? If we're in this post-Christian culture, if we're in the postmodern society that doesn't accept absolute truth, but truth is relative. If it's okay for you, it's okay for me. How do we how does the church operate in this context? How, what, is the, what does it look like? Yeah, every week we set up a hundred chairs and we try to create an environment where worshipers of God could come in and not be distracted by rafters and a gym and basketball goals. And um, how, do we, how do we operate in a culture where we're not seeing people just dying to get into church? You know? Every Sunday, I drive out in the community and I see hundreds of people out. I see hundreds of people everywhere, and, and church may be seven or eight on a list of options for people to do on a Sunday morning. A few weeks ago, my daughters and I were driving, and I said, "What are five things that people who don't go to church, what are they doing on a Sunday morning?" There are dozens of options and churches last on their list. That's what it means for the cultural wind to be at our face. So, so what do we look like? How do we operate? You know, there was a time in our nation where a church could uh, start and you could send out a mailer and there would just be um, people of peace, not necessarily believers, but people who were open to the message of the gospel that had a cultural church background that would just come and would fill the seats that we set up. But uh, the last five years, we have not experienced that at all. So the question, what is the church going to look like? And unless God has given you a prophetic word for what the church looks like, all we have is speculation. And I'm not talking about how the church expresses itself in terms of dispensationalism or in covenant theology where God has revealed Himself to people in a different time or epoch or series or through different covenants or that kind of thing. I'm talking about what do we look like? Do we keep setting up chairs? Do we keep putting a stage up and worshiping the way we worship? What will the church look like two years from now? You see, the church has gone through a lot of different looks and different cultures all around the world. You think about, uh, we, we talked about um, uh, the Ukrainian church and how a few years ago we had a, a speaker from Ukraine, and, and when she spoke, she told us how as a child they would gather In the woods at five o'clock in the morning, they would get all their kids out of bed and they would bundle them up and they would hike far out into a forest and they would start a little fire and maybe a hundred people would gather and they would sit freezing Uh, by the light of the dawn. They would read scripture, listen to sermons, pray together, sing together in hushed tones because they were an exile church. Will we be an exile church? Will there be a day when it's no longer legal for us to gather, when a sermon like I'm preaching right now would classify as hate speech and I I could be arrested at any moment by the authorities for preaching uh, that the things our culture says is okay when I say that they're sin. When I proclaim the truth that the Bible says that it's sinful for people to live the way they live, will I be persecuted? Will you be persecuted? Yes. More than likely if if things don't change, that's what we will experience. Will it be like underground churches in Syria and Iran where we have uh, been talking about a few weeks ago with the persecuted church where it looks more like five or six believers gathering in a living room and secretly praying and worshiping and fasting and and preaching the word? And, And will it look like that kind of a cell level where just the very fact that you step outside of your doors could mean the end of your life? Or will it look like an underground church, uh, house church networks in China where there is uh, a looking like there's a beginning of acceptance uh, as long as they don't rock the boat too much? There are state churches in Cuba where I visited a few years ago that, that the church could operate in relative freedom as long as it stayed within the confined uh, confines of a, of a state-authorized church. What will a church look like in America? What will it look like in a few years? We were in Uganda this summer, and a church um, purchased a city dump, a Calvary Chapel of Entebbe, purchased a dump, and it was uh, throughout the reign of Idi Amin, it became a mass grave where genocide had taken place, and they would take all the bodies of all the people that that regime had decimated, and they would bury them in that property, the city dump, and for 30 years, it was just a dumping ground of rubbish and trash and furniture and bodies. And when Calvary Church of Entebbe started 10 years ago, they bought that property. And now, what was once a place of death is now a place of life. 400 children gather every single day to learn and to read and to worship and to be a part of a school and to eat. And it is a lighthouse in a dark community. It's a redemption movement. But that church is expressing itself in different ways than we would express the church. They have a huge property with buildings, and, and every square inch of that property is used for gospel purposes to reach a dark culture, and many people flow in and out from their culture into that church. What will we look like? Well, I can't definitively say. But I can say this, as we look back at Philippians 3. Philippians 3. I can't say that we will be a group of people who gather to worship, who personally stand on truth as born-again believers, who personally come together to encourage one another, to love one another, to pray for one another, to bear each other's burdens, to be bold proclaimers of the gospel outside of this room, to share the gospel with people as all the things that we've talked about for the last eight weeks, you will be, and we will be together And as we look back at Philippians 3, we take these words that Paul wrote in verse 17 through 21 to heart, where he says, Brothers, imitate me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. How are we supposed to walk? We're supposed to walk together. It's true that uh, if you isolate yourself from this body of believers or another body of believers, you can expect for your faith to grow cold and for compromise to sink in in whatever fashion you're most um, tempted to, whether that's in rebellion or religiousness. You will either become a legalist and a self-righteous, law-abiding, pharisaical type person, or you will express yourself in liberal theology, in liberal doctrine, in compromising, and in wild living, or in one of those ways, as you isolate from the body of Christ. So Paul is saying, imitate me. Keep your eyes on those who walk together according to the example. For many of you, whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, Paul is mourning the fact that they're losing believers. Many of you, I say with tears, now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It means you'll have people in this room In your circle, in your sphere of influence, your believers that you once knew are now will be counted as those on the other side, enemies of the gospel, rather than proclaimers of the gospel. I had a conversation a few weeks ago if somebody was embarrassed of the words of Christ. "Ah, I don't know if Jesus really meant this. Surely he can we can soften his message a little bit. Their end is destruction, and their God is their belly. They just follow their appetite. Anything that they're hungry for, they do. And this is the expression of the flesh. They have their minds set on earthly things, Paul says. But verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven we await a Savior who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. What does it it look like? For us to walk as believers, what will our church look like? I tell you, the last of my worries are where we meet. <laughs> We've met at eight locations. As we, we started at the Watson's, Watson's house. We just, as a small group, praying and fasting and meeting every Sunday, asking the Lord, we heard, here are eight good reasons why we can't plant a church. And we met there for eight, uh, six, or seven months, just asking the Lord, do you want us to plant a church? Asking the leadership, do you want us to plant the church? Fasting, praying, asking God, here's this reason why we can't plant, here's another reason. And week by week, month by month, all those obstacles were taken down, and so we began to meet there. Then we met at another church on their stage at Faith uh, in Sellersville. Uh, Once we moved from Faith Sellersville, after a month, uh, we moved to a bounce house. I'm sorry, no, then we moved to Grace uh, Covenant Church, Grace Community Church, um, that met out here. Somewhere, I forgot the name of it, at a school, Pen Ridge, Penview, something like that. We met with them for a month. And then we met at a bounce house in birthday party room A or B, right? All the kids are fist-pumping. They loved that church expression. It was um, They went to, it was like, a bir- we rented the birthday party room every week. It was just a small group of believers there. Then we met under a tree at the Sodderton Park for five and a half months. Just a group of believers Meeting out in the open, then we met at Indian crest, then we met at Green Street, then we met here. Listen, where we meet doesn't matter. Don't get so caught up in the location as much as who's with us. Everywhere around the world, believers gather and it doesn't matter where they meet, it matters who's meeting with them. And the reason why they meet is to worship and to speak and to preach truth like we talked about in First Timothy four two weeks ago to encourage each other and to live on mission. And in all these ways, I may not be able to tell you how many chairs we set up and where the address will be. But I can tell you that God's people will continue to, to do what God's people have done in various contexts around the world. And the church of Jesus Christ will look like what God wants it to look like for this culture, for this time. Some people wish that we could go back. If we could only have a church like Spurgeon. Well, we're not in London in the 17th century, right? In the 18th century. We're, we're here now. Spurgeon wouldn't preach the way he preached today because he has a different crowd and a different culture. Our expression is to be faithful to Jesus and to the Word together in this culture and in this place. So I invite you to join with me as we keep our eyes on Christ, and walk together and live as citizens, not of this culture, but citizens of another kingdom that's coming, that our minds aren't set on earthly things, but they're set on things above. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the series and for the way in which you have been speaking to us, for the way in which you have helped us to understand what does it mean to be a Christ follower in this culture and in this context. Would you give us wisdom and discernment? Would you help us, Lord, to know uh, what to do? Would you help us to know how to express the truth of the gospel in this time and in this place? In Jesus' name, amen.